0: morning everyone who's excited about learn about the millennium today all right good glad to hear it we are in the second week in just a very brief review we looked last week at the worship of the kingdom very exciting i mean we talk about standing before a throne we'll we'll actually get to do that in person not just spiritually in that connection but physically around the throne of god and and we looked at just some of the aspects of what it will be like to be in this perfect place, this perfect government, a perfect leader, circumstances that are at the optimum for humankind and just how that will flourish and we talked about last week, one of the things is that technology, discovery, innovation, creativity is going to be unleashed. Creation itself will be unbounded. Maybe there's things that are going to happen in terms of the resources of the earth that begin to just overflow with bounty and provide so many more opportunities for humankind to develop and grow. And, and this morning, we're going to look a little bit more at the, the work of the kingdom. What, you know, I, I I I I said last week, you know, this idea of, being on a cloud with a harp. You know, there is going to be harps in heaven. It says that in Revelation, but but that's in heaven. And then we're talking about a millennial kingdom that's down to earth. We use that term, down to earth, right? You know, the rubber meets the road. We're talking about being in contact physically with this world in all that God has prepared for us, and, and especially as well for those that enter in in human body with capacities like ours, but still in some level limited and what will our role be in that experience and that's what we're going to look at this morning before we do if you could we're going to be have your bibles ready we're going to be looking at several passages this morning we'll be moving back and forth quickly just to try to cover the topic in the time allowed let's pray together Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for the fact that you explain the future to us. You don't leave us timid and nervous and anxious, wondering what's next. Your word is so expansive in these areas. And at the same time, Lord, you you leave some gaps to allow our spiritual imagination to be stirred up, to be excited, to be enthused about what is ahead of us. That truly, Lord, and, and many of us are guilty, myself as well, we get so caught up in our day to day that we forget that our heart and our passions should look for and long for your appearing. And uh, Lord, when it gets tough and when circumstances in this world crushes in, you humble us, you remind us that this is not really our home, that there's a place yet for us. And so help us, Lord, this morning to have keen minds and stirred up spirits to these things that you revealed to us, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. I uh, I had some early experiences, my dad grew up on a farm, so, so we, we learned about work pretty pretty early. I was cutting the grass at 10. Nothing difficult. It was a very flat, small rancher in, in, in Glen Burnie. And I, and I got to be able to do that pretty well. And we had a, a single lady in our church, Miss Cleo. She was a school math teacher. Very proper southern lady from Kentucky. And I don't know if she worked something out with my dad or whatever, but my dad probably gave the clue that I think Brian might be ready for an opportunity, a work opportunity. I think I was probably 11 or 12 is before we had moved to Fort Meade. And she had a picket fence. And it was, I was thinking about this stage. It was really like about the size of the stage. There would be that section there. There was a gate. And there was like all this line of three-inch pickets on three-inch spaces down to that end with another gate. And it had been kind of uh, let go, and paint was all chipping, and, and there's leaves around it and stuck in between the pickets. And Miss Cleo asked me, would you like to earn some money? And I was, of course, yes, I would like to earn money. And then we go over and we look at this job, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be a big job. And, it, it, you know, by the time we pull the leaves out and wash down, you know, the... the the the, uh, fence and scrape the loose paint and all that stuff. It was three full Saturday and I made 40 bucks. Now 40 bucks was a lot more than it is today. That was in 1973 or 74. So it it was a fair wage I guess for an 11, 12 year old. But it was really neat. It was nice having the money. But it was really something that happened inside of me as a young child to look at that work that I invested that energy and sweat in and say, I did that. And doesn't it look great? And there was like this this thing that happened inside of me. Uh, it probably continues to this day when I build something and I see it's finished. And, and I have this sense of accomplishment. And so the money that we make as a child on these kind of jobs is important. But the gift of work is priceless. The gift of work is priceless. I don't want to see that this morning. Because... A lot of times we have a very warped and bent attitude toward work on either end of the spectrum, either laziness or workaholism. And God wants us to find the beauty and the balance of what's in the middle. You know, that sense of accomplishment still exists today. I'm a property adjuster for an insurance company And they're always tweaking our software and updating it. And it's mostly good things. But a couple weeks ago, something happened. There was a glitch that I would get the work accomplished. I'd make the payment or send a denial letter or whatever. And I couldn't close my claim. And all these numbers kind of stack up. You see how many you have open. And I had six of them that I had done all the work. But I couldn't close them because there was a glitch in the software. And that annoyed me because I wanted that sense of finality, of accomplishment. Being able to say, that's done and that's accomplished. I don't know if that's unique to me. I don't think it is. I think there's something deeply embedded in us as human beings. And that is that productivity, number one. Productivity is inherent in the creational command. In Genesis 1, 28, God gave the command, be fruitful and multiply. Basically, have kids. Why? Because that's your work army, as my nine kids know. You know, it's great to put nine people to work on a job than just me. And they don't like that sometimes, but, you know, I'm trying to give them the gift of work too. So pass it along from my dad to me and from me to them. But, but the other part of that command is rule over and subdue. Basically bring things to order. Make them beautiful. Make it right. Bring some sense of order out of what is at least some level of chaos or disorder. And that's a beautiful part of of God making us. It was before the curse. That command was given before there was sin, before there was failure, before there was the curse that said, you will work by the sweat of your brow. Now, I don't know what that's like. It'd be nice to work and not sweat. (laughs) I mean, for some of you that do those jobs outside in the summer, and I used to do all kinds of things, on roofs, building decks, getting up in attics, doing inspections. I've been to some really brutally hot places. As a matter of fact, the hottest place I've ever been, I worked for a greenhouse company. And it was literally 120 degrees inside there. That's miserable. I would love to have done that work and not sweat, to be comfortable. Because that just drains the soul out of you and the desire to want to do the work. But this idea of being productive is part of being made in God's image part of being made in God's image God is a God who works who creates John 5 verse 17 Jesus actually did some work on the Sabbath oh naughty naughty Pharisees are standing right there to pick up on that and Jesus said my father is working now and I myself am working and they understood what he said because they were ready to like kill him you're making yourself out to be God what do you mean You're saying that you're above the Sabbath, and that's kind of what he was saying. You see, God rested once on the Sabbath as a model to us, and God has been working ever since. We, on the other hand, are finite. We need that Sabbath rest, that day where we relax, where we become refreshed, where we recreate. What does that mean? To recreate something, to do something enjoyable that's different from what we earn our daily bread. And that's why it was such an egregious thing for Israel not to observe the Sabbath year to let the land rest that every seventh year. Because they were saying, God, we don't need you. We don't need to trust you. We can work it out for ourselves. And that's the trap of workaholism. If I just work an hour longer. If I just work that day off. And God wants us to rest. To be refreshed. Spirit, soul, and body. But working is part of our Humanity. And we are fulfilled by accomplishing purposeful work. There is something about when we we do that work, when we can sign that last piece of paper that needs to go out that day, when we can hit that last stroke of paint on a room, and whatever it is that we busy ourselves with. There's something that is purposeful. That's why in Psalm 90, Moses in his prayer, as he closes out that psalm, which looked back on, the tediousness and the reminder of the finite nature of humanity as he had watched a generation die over that 40 years of wandering. He says and pleads, Oh Lord, do confirm the work of our hands. Confirm the work of our hands. He says it twice, meaning this doesn't look like anything has been accomplished. And it really wasn't. It was just judgment and treading through the sand for that generation. It did not want to go into the enjoyable work of conquering the land and moses saying look for this generation going in there please lord let there be something that stands out of their efforts and their involvement this we talked a little bit last week there will be a means of economic exchange in the kingdom as 45 goes through this whole issue of how things are weighed out and and how there's just balances and and then it talks about even shekels and it talks about being able to give offerings I mean, not to get on a sidetrack too far, but there is something inherently rooted to the Bible and capitalism, which basically says you should work and make your own bread. That you shouldn't be, you know, just sucking off the collective. And, you know, how can you offer something freely that you don't own and control? And that will be the case. People will work in that kingdom and they will have a means of exchange because they will be expected to provide offerings out of free will. How is that possible unless they gain something as part of that stewardship? I ask another question. We'll come back to First Corinthians later, but it says in First Corinthians ten, I think it's verse fifteen, if any man's work which he has built upon it, this foundation that's in Jesus, he shall receive a reward. I ask a question hypothetically: What will we do with our rewards? What will we do with our rewards? I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it's often thought that we're going to just lay them down and worship. But what if they aren't all laid down and worship? What if there's some kind of, because it says gold, silver, precious stones, might be metaphorical. But what if there's something of substance that we take into the kingdom by means of maybe seed resources? I love this phrase. You've heard it before. Do something you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. It's, it's really true. If, if we come to our daily work now as if we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of the dr- drudgery, a lot of the negativity, a lot of the things that we don't like about work, and, and I'll, I'll be the first to say, there's days I don't like doing my job. <laughs> there's things I don't like about dealing with unreasonable customers or not being able to communicate clearly or solve a problem. But there is something about what we decide to spend the vast majority of our life doing, eight hours a day, five days a week, or more, that we should really love it. We should really feel like that's our calling as much as any other thing. Well, next thing that we'll be doing, it's not presidency. There's actually a different term. It's pronounced differently. It's presidency presidency, I'm trying to keep my P's, I'm sorry if if I throw you a really arcane word here, but presidency, the act or activity of looking after and making decisions about something. And we're going to do that, The, the glorified us in the future of the millennial kingdom. We will rule the nation. There will be governance through a strata of authority, districts, cities, towns, communities. And notice in Luke chapter 19, Jesus talks about a parable. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. And he was giving them some insight in this parable. And he talks about these slaves that are put in charge of the master's wealth. They were given some miners or some coin. And they were to invest them. And And notice when the master returns, you know, verse 16, 17 in this parable, he said to him, "Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be an authority over ten cities." And Jesus kind of like implying that that this smallness of responsibility can turn into a great responsibility in the future. And so it will be, because the scriptures clearly say, and we'll not look at it, but Revelation 3:26, 5:10, 26, 26 says that we will be a kingdom of priests, that we will, we will be in rulership authorities. And if you look back even at the arrangement of the priest in Leviticus, there was a hierarchy. Some, there was the high priest, you know, and he's the only guy that could go in the Holy Holies. And then on down, and there's people that were responsible for certain things. And there was families of priests, all they were responsible for was, you know, the the cleaning and the upkeep of the. The tabernacle or the temple later. And when it was the tabernacle, there were certain people that were responsible for taking down those coverings and rolling them up and making sure they were cared for and then reassembling and whenever the people of Israel stopped and the cloud stopped for them to stop somewhere and to reset it up all over again. So, all you people come early and set the chairs up. That's important. That's one of the faithful and little things. You know, that's part of the ministry of the church, of the body of believers. And uh, I'd like sitting on a chair rather than this wooden floor. So, we're thankful for those that come to do that. But there will be this greater responsibility meted out to us as servant priests, as ruling priests. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says, and Paul says, don't you know, it's kind of like like he implies, you should know this, that that we're going to judge angels in the future. I had this idea that, and in, in the in the Greek word just means to make decisions about, you know? and I had this idea that we'll have charge, we'll delegate, we'll direct even the angelic realm of some sort, whether we have like an assistant, I don't I don't know, but let your mind go go a little bit. I mean, if they're already ministering invisibly for us, why wouldn't they minister practically for us when we have such important duties to accomplish? We will judge angels. One of the other things that, that maybe you introverts are less excited about, but there will be personal relationship building. But remember, you'll be glorified. So, you know, all your hesitations, your fears, anxieties of, you know, one or just the Sometimes maybe the tediousness, but there will be relationship building. And I think about it in in these realms. Obviously, we're going to build a relationship with Jesus. I mean, what will it mean when the Lord says he's going to fellowship with us? You know, the invitation of of Revelation chapter 3, you know, I want to come in and and dine with you. And there's this, this fantastic, you know, concept that just like the disciples walked and talked with Jesus, that will be the potential of our experience. Well, we'll also build relationships with our peers, the other glorified saints. Old Testament, New Testament, talked a little bit about this last week. I'm excited about that too. I mean, yes, Jesus is the preeminent, you know, no, no close second. But I'm excited about meeting people that I've read their biography. And I've, I've seen them pull back the cover on their life and their walk with God, and the trials they went through, and to get into the nitty-gritty of, of how we came to Christ, how he worked in our life, what he led us to do, and how we failed temptations, how we overcame temptations. Very neat kinds of conversations that await us one day. And then, of course, we'll build relationships with those we serve, those on earth that we talked about that enter into that millennium, that will be ruling and reigning and judging and all those kind of things. It will not be some distant thing. I mean, turn to Luke 22. I, I think this is a, you know, an insight that, that we need for now, but it also has some impact on the future. You remember in the upper room, it says in verse 24, where are they at? They're at, they're at the Last Supper. We call it the Last Supper. But they're, they're at this, this fellowship dinner. The Lord has heavy things upon his heart. And notice what happens. Now there arose, in the midst of the dinner, is implied, a dispute among them as to which one was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, we all have our carnal moments, but man, that's that's pretty blatantly carnal. You know, the Lord's trying to tell me he's going to die. And they're like, "Uh, okay, so let me get around you again, Lord. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to get that right-hand position? Notice how Jesus handles this. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. What did he had just done? He got A basin and a towel and clean their dirty feet. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Well, at least so far. And just as the Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus could have ridiculed them for their shallow discussion of the moment, but he did not do that. He took it as an opportunity to say, okay, you think you want to be great. Let me talk about what kingdom life is like. You want to be great, then you get to the lowest level and serve as many people as possible. You do the most menial thing, the most dirtiest job, and in the kingdom, you're the guy that I'll trust with a lot of responsibility. You see, Jesus was not diminishing their question or even their passion to want to achieve. He was just just saying, You have to do it a different way. You have to do it like I do it. And we're going to have the opportunity to live that out for a thousand years with people who are still going to be sinners. Remember we talked about that last week? People who still will have the flesh. People who will be born with the Adamic nature. And they will have the same kind of weaknesses and foibles that we do. Although, like we said, with only the flesh to worry about. Not the world system And not the devil any longer, but they still will have opportunity to trip up. And we need to come alongside gently a servant to be involved in their life. I think that's what it means. Well, that leads us to number four. We'll have priestly ministry. We'll have priestly ministry. I think this is really cool. I'm excited about this one, and we're going to look at a few things. But I think teaching is going to be part of the priestly ministry. Turn over to Exodus. And again, this is me with my spiritual imagination, you know, basically building it off of something that is plausible based on Scripture. But you remember when Moses was doing all the work, his father-in-law came and said, hey, you, you got to work smarter, not harder. You know, you... Are going to wear yourself out. Now, glorified bodies. I don't think we wear ourselves out, but the principle is there's a more effective way to do something than not. And so, in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 19, he says, "Now listen to me. This is Jethro talking to Moses. I shall give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk." and the work they are to do. Doesn't that sound like very practical kinds of work that might be necessary in that kingdom? That there'll be people that will still be needing to grow and expand their knowledge of the king's directives and his way of doing things, and how he wants worship done, and what the appointed feast dates are, and how to be ready for that, and how to go about your business serving unto the king. So you need to be taught that. In 1 Corinthians chapter two, not, uh, chapter two, 6, verse 2, not only did we see in verse 3 that we'll judge angels, but Paul says, do you not understand? You're going to judge the world. You're going to make decisions. And some of those decisions will be spiritual in nature, such as a priest would do. Back to Exodus and verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easy and there will be less burden. Again, maybe not a burden, but maybe just a wise way to distribute authority and to at the same time encourage people to grow and develop, right? Right? I mean, when you're discipling somebody, when you're training up somebody that's new or apprentice or younger, you model it, you show and tell, but there's a point where you step back and you say, now you do it. I think that's going to be a a neat kind of experience where we have that opportunity to serve people in a priestly capacity also, but priestly in the sense that we're representatives to whomever we have authority and responsibility for That Jesus himself is directing out his rule throughout the earth through those that he has given subordinate function. And this is my conjecture. That's why I see it in quotes. But if these first two functions are going on, is it possible and even probable that we will retain our spiritual giftedness as part of our glorified experience? I don't know about you, but that excites me. My gift is teaching. The idea of getting to teach people and open the Bible up to people that are hungry to learn, that's exciting you say, well, why do, why would we need these other gifts? Well, I, I don't know, but I, I'm just I'm using my imagination here to some degree, but building it off of some scriptural insight. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts of God are irrevocable? Is that just the gift of salvation or that is that a more encompassing term? I don't know. It's a good question. But 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says... That the reason we have the giftedness in the body believers is for the common good. A very broad statement. That we use our gifts primarily to build up the body, but don't our gifts flow outside of the body to others at times? In service, in showing mercy, and encouragement. It's not maybe received or the dynamic may not be the same as it is between brothers and sisters, but the, the spiritual compulsion To want to use that giftedness in whatever realm God calls us to use it. It's part of my spiritual DNA. And I tend to think that it might be part of my DNA in the future in a glorified state. I'll let you think and meditate on that. That's pretty exciting to me. And then finally, our work today is preparation for the future. Our work today is preparation for the future. And this is really where we want to spend some time. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Before we do that, turn to Matthew chapter 5, because I skipped over this verse, but I do want to bring it to your attention. Matthew chapter 5, you can hold your finger, Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 5, right after Jesus gives the, what we call the Beatitudes, the teaching about the blessedness of the kingdom, and how to be a subject within the kingdom, and how the kingdom should find its way into this world as we act as salt and light, that we're distinctively different from the people in this world In such a degree that we have the ability to retard corruption and sinfulness just by our very presence and our activities among men. Jesus turns and he says, and and again, I think it's because he's going to get ready to speak some of the most radical truth that his audience has ever heard. It's not like the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. So it might be a misunderstanding. He says in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. When's that? Oh, that, that's after the millennium. Okay. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. Until it is all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven and whoever keeps, underline that word, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus doing again? He's given us a path to greatness. And so you see, I've noted that there is these commands. Luke 22, the command of Christ on servanthood. We're going to look here at the command, the stewardship. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. There's not so much a command here as there is in a, in a parallel passage, but there is a a teaching that Jesus wants us to know and understand. Verse 14. He's talking about, notice verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. That's first paragraph of the chapter. And then you notice the beginning of 14, 4, and it's in italics, for it is. Because it's, it's a continuation of what he was talking about in verse 1. He's giving you a different picture of the kingdom, right? And we'll look at actually that first paragraph next week. But he's saying, look, the kingdom of heaven has some things I want you to understand. I'm going to, use a, I'm going to use some parables to kind of like impart spiritual truth with a human story. He says, for it is just, that is the kingdom, is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. And immediately, notice that, underline immediately, Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with him and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug in the ground, hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, you might underline long time again, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Enter in the joy of your master. One who received two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted me a two. See, I've gained two more. Same response. And the one who received the one, verse 24, received the one talent, came up and said, master, I knew you'd be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away, hid your talent in the ground, see you have what is yours his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow. Gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I were were to receive my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, give it to the one who has the ten talents. Notice this principle. For everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away Cast out the worthless slave in the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, there is this weightiness to being a believer and a follower and a servant of Christ. And that is, we have been entrusted with great resources. You see, the problem with the third slave is he didn't understand the character of the master. You know, the master didn't dispute his, his analysis, but his analysis was wrong. His analysis was wrong. That which was entrusted to him was not his resource; it was the master's, and he decided not to do anything with it. We have all, and honestly, this makes me shudder sometimes when I think about all that I have been entrusted as a person who grew up not only with Christian parents, Christian grandparents, ancestors, in a Bible-teaching church all my life, from the time I couldn't even know there was messages going on in the nursery, who have been able to go to Christian school, to go to a Bible college. There is a weight, a heaviness of wealth entrusted to me. And to you too. If you grew up in America with the wealth, the privilege, the opportunities, a Bible, complete, there are brothers and sisters right now that do not have maybe even a page of this. But they're being faithful with what they have. This is a key principle to our time here on earth as we prepare for heaven, that there will be an accounting. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. We will stand one day. We will not be judged as sons. There's no condemnation to us. But we will be judged as servants. And what do we do with the finiteness that was entrusted to us with the prospect of infinite blessing? You see, this command is clearly tied to how we handle, first of all, our time. Man, I I will tell you, I'm a great time waster. I ask you to underline the word immediately. You know what? We all think we have so much time to make an eternal difference. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And the wise slave realized, I have to get busy now. Now again, there's this other pull to want to have workaholism be our God too. We need to function in the spirit with the direction and the wisdom that god gives us you know realize there was a lot of downtime when jesus ministered and taught the disciples i mean yes he was very busy we have those moments in mark where he worked from sun up to sundown and people were still coming And you know what he said i'm going away <laughs> i'm getting away because i have to rest i have to be refreshed i have to get resources again from my father because i'm living in a finite body And we have to have that wisdom to know how we can be most productive. And you won't be most productive if all you do is work, 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 work. I know that. I was in ministry for a lot of years in a small church doing a lot of things and did them wrong many times because I didn't take Jethro's advice. So it's tied to how we handle our time. It's tied to how we handle our talents and our gifts. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? First Peter says that you, you, you are stored of the manifold grace of God, meaning you have an accountability with your gift. If you don't know what your gift is, how do you know how to use it? There might be a day coming when I'll be teaching a, Saturday, a Friday, Saturday spiritual gifts class to help you understand the teaching of the Bible on spiritual gifts and how you can come to understand and discern what your gift is and then know how to enhance your gift with character development and skills so that you can be a productive servant of god with that entrustment that he's given to you It also very importantly turned to matthew cha- or first timothy chapter six. First timothy chapter six it has to do with how we handle our treasure which is also dealt with in luke chapter 16 where the command there is make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness so that you may be received into eternal dwellings basically that that command there in Luke 16 is Jesus saying, hey, when you invest in eternal things like my word and the souls of people, you're going to have an abundant entrance in heaven because there's going to be people that are going to come and embrace you and say, thank you for sharing the greatness of the gospel with me. But look, something even like unrighteous men, and there's instructions, verse 17 of first timothy six paul says instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertain riches but on god who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy instruct them to do good to be rich in good works not just throwing the money but but do the works too to be generous ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for when the future God's keeping a track of the dollars, people. And he's he's looking at how that's going to make a difference in the future. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Powerful. And then finally, and especially truth. We'll not look at this. This is another teaching for another time. But in Luke chapter 8, you know that's the parable of the sower and the soils. And we will just make a point that the conclusion of that teaching, Jesus does give a command there. And he's speaking to his disciples because, remember, they asked for the interpretation. Oh, you, you know, Lord, I know you expect to speak in parables and for the simple to understand it, but we didn't get it. What was that all about? And he goes in and he explains the parable. And finally, says, he says in verse 18, this is the command, Underlined. take care how you listen. That's the point of that parable. Take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Every time you open your Bible, every time you sit in a message, you stack up accountability for truth. Do you understand that? You have a responsibility for it now. What do you do with it? What do I do with it? Because God says, look, if you stored truth well, I'd give you more truth. That's That's an amazing promise, isn't it? I'm going to open my word to secrets and insights and applications so that you can grow even more. You see, it matters so much the stewardship, time, talents, gifts, treasure, and truth that God lets us have in these finite years. And it's building up something that's not going to pass away yet to come. Where we're going to actively be busy with those resources, once again, and glorify bodies among humankind as the vice regents, the vice rulers, under the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I don't know about you, but I want to aspire to greatness. It's not a bad thing, you know? I want to be great in the kingdom. How about you? You see, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and just to, you know, just to remind us of these passages that are very important, that sometimes we don't like to read them because they're not really so comforting. But verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're talking about the beam of seed of Christ. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul speaking of himself, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. What is he saying? Hey, I came to you Corinthians with the gospel. I laid the foundation of faith and you guys believed. And he knew the circumstances, if you read 1 Corinthians. They were not very good. They were not being as wise as their mentor, as their discipler. He says, and another is building on it. But let each man, each woman be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if a man builds upon the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, or straw... Each man's work will become evident for the day. will show it. There's a day coming. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as through fire. That is one of the most stunning and trembling verses I can think of in the New Testament. That there will be people that are some of our brothers and sisters, that when their work is tested, and hopefully we need to have an account of our own lives, that when their work is tested, not them personally, but when their work is tested, there's going to be nothing left of eternal value. That's a scary thought, isn't it? I don't want to be in that camp. I don't want to be in that camp. Yet they'll be saved, be glorified. But what will they be doing in the kingdom as work for God? I don't know, but I don't want to find out. See, we, we have an accountability. We are stewards of the manifold grace of God, the grace of God that shows up in so many ways in our life. And we need to consciously think about that stewardship. You know, there is another reward. We kind of hit on it back in Matthew chapter five uh, Matthew chapter twenty-five. And going back to my story with the fence, Miss Cleo, like I said, she was a math teacher, pretty exact person. She she's like, This is how I want it done, and you know. And I knew she was going to like along the way, she's like, Well, we missed the side edges on some of these pickets. This was before rollers, people. This is all with a brush. Three-inch pickets, 100 linear feet probably. And you got to hit the side edges, that little three-quarter inch edge all the way around. She was good to make me be, you know, very circumspect and do a good and excellent job. And the great thing was, it's just like one day, hopefully, she says, Brian, you did a good job. You know what? The Lord Jesus, that will be the true reward. That parable in Matthew 25 remember this is what we should long to hear the gift of affirmation well done you good and faithful servant enter in to the joy of your master well done well done good your faithful servant enter into the joy of your master let's pray Lord Jesus what words should we aspire to hear uh, Father, our life was invested in eternal things, in your word, which is not going to pass away, that we are hiding in our heart, we are studying it, we are applying it, we're living it, and into the eternal souls of people that we serve, that we, that we give a smile to, that we give a cup of water to, you said, is, is even as if we did it to you. Show an act of kindness to share the gospel with somebody who's outside your family, to give them access and an opportunity to hear and believe, to share a meal, to do a work of service, to, to love somebody like you would love them. We pray, Father, that you would just help us to see that you're always thinking how this finite world can touch the future, can touch future things and experiences and the wonder of what is yet to come. Help our eyes to, put our, uh, to be put and focused on those things above, those things that are at your right hand.